0: Hey welcome to talking MMT Morning Edition. Uh, on two thirty three of uh, the Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton. The descriptive side of MMT. Even though we're talking about how to act on the insights of MMT, I don't want you to think that of MMT as something that ever every government needs to adapt or imp- implement. MMT does not come with a free packaged set of policies to be rolled out across Global landscape. It is first and foremost a descriptive description of how a minor fiat currency works. With an improvement, uh, sorry, uh, with an improved understanding of the monetary system comes the ability to distinguish artificial barriers from legitimate constraints. The descriptive side of MMT is about helping us free, uh, break free of The myths and misunderstandings that have been holding us back. Getting an accurate picture of how the monetary system works is a necessary first step towards building an economy that works for all people. Reaching that better world will require moving beyond the descriptive side of MMT to its prescriptive policy-making side. Necessarily, that necessarily means asking what role we we want our public institutions, for example, Congress and the Federal Reserve to play in supporting a policy agenda that advances our collective interest. The descriptive aspect is like a doctor's diagnostic uh, toolkit. Before medical interns can prescribe a course of of treatment to an alien patient, they must first establish a working knowledge of how the body functions, that means learning about the circulatory system, the digestive system, the nervous system, and so on. Only after interns have demonstrated competence in their understanding of how the human body works do we allow them to become doctors and write prescriptions for patients. The problem we have today is that economic policy is often prescribed by people who despite holding an advanced degree in economics. Poses no real understanding of how a monetary system works. By offering a better descriptive framework, MMT helps us to see a wider array of policy treatments that could make our economy stronger and healthier. An MMT view of the monetary system changes the way we think about what it means for currency issuing nations to, in quotes, live within their means it also it, it asks us to think in terms of real resource constraints inflation rather than perceived financial constraints it teaches us to ask not if was how we would pay for it but how will you resource it it shows us that if we have the technology technological technological know-how and the available resources that people the factories, the equipment, and the raw materials to put a man on the moon or embark on the Green New Deal, to tackle climate change, and funding to carry out those missions can always be be made available. Coming up with the money is the easy part. Managing inflation risk is a critical challenge. More than any other economic approach, NMT places inflation at the center of the debate over spending limits. It also offers a more sophisticated array of techniques for managing inflationary pressures that are then what we have today. What MMT describes is the reality of our post Bretton Woods monetary system. We are no longer on the gold standard, and yet much of our our political discourse is still rooted in that outmoded, outmoded way of thinking. We see it every day, uh, every time a reporter asks a politician, where will you find the money to do that? It's long past time we come to grips with what it means to be the issuer of a sovereign fiat currency. For the currency issuer, money is no object, Literally literally or figuratively. It doesn't exist in some scarce physical form, like gold, that the government needs to find in order to spend. It is conjured into existence from a computer keyboard each time the Federal Reserve carries out an authorized payment on behalf of the Treasury. That might sound like a free lunch. It isn't. MMT isn't a blank check. It doesn't grant us carte blanche when it comes to funding new programs and is not a plot to grow the size of government. As an an analytical analytical okay, framework, MMT is about identifying the untapped potential in our economy, what we call our fiscal space. If there are millions of people looking for paid work and our economy has the capacity to produce more goods and services without raising prices, then we have the fiscal space to bring those resources into productive employment. How we choose to utilize that fiscal space is a political choice political matter Here, MMT can be used to defend policies that are traditionally more liberal, uh, i.e. many for all, free college or middle class tax cuts, or more conservative, uh, e.g. military spending or corporate tax cuts. The point is that we run our economy like a six foot tall guy who wanders around perpetually hunched over in a house with eight feet ceilings because someone forbids that if he tries to stand up. Uh, stand up tall, he'll suffer a massive head trauma. For too many years, we've been crouching down when we could have been standing strong. Irrational fears about government debt and fiscal deficits could po- uh, policymakers, cause policymakers, rather, in the U.S., Japan, and U.K. and elsewhere to pivot away from fiscal stimulus towards austerity in the years following the global financial crisis. This forced immeasurable pain on tens if not hundreds of millions of worldwide. populist movements on both the left and the right found inspiration in these fallings, or failings rather. Not everything can be fixed through a more generous application but of the federal budget. Austerity has exa- exacerbated many of our social and economic problems, but budget cuts are not the sole driver of stagnation and rising inequality. Restoring economic security to the working class will require tackling monopoly power, sweeping reforms to our tax code, labor laws, and trade and housing policy, and more. It will also require a new economic model. We must end the cruel and inefficient practice of relying on democratically uh, unaccountable central banks to target the right mix of inflation and unemployment. To build on an economic uh, economy, rather for the people, responsibility for maintaining uh, employment and income is, uh, income security must become the responsibility of the elected representatives of people. Congress, with its greatest, with its great power over the bu- a federal budget, must play an active and permanent role in stabilizing output and employment through time. The prescription side of MMT. Recall the Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man principle that, in quotes, "...with great power there must also come great responsibility." The prescriptive side of MMT moves us beyond the looking glass into a conversation about what fiscal and monetary policy might look like in an MMT-informed world. MMT urges us to demote monetary policy, at least in the current form, and elevate fiscal policy as the primary tool for macroeconomic stability. Congress holds the power of the purse, and we need to harness that power to build an economy that works for all of us. I know what we're, what you're thinking. Can we really trust the government uh, with that kind of power? My answer is yes and no. I say yes because we, because we the people have already entrusted them with the power NMT doesn't give Congress any new authority over our monetary system. We have a democratically elected government that unshackled itself from the gold standard nearly half a century ago. That decision gave Congress unfettered access to the public first. Having the power of the first means never having to ask, where will we find the money? To cut taxes or spend trillions on endless wars? Congress just needs to find enough votes, and voila, the money will be there. Today, the federal budget is about 4.5 trillion, roughly 20% of the total GDP. If it wants to, Congress can write a 5 trillion dollar budget, or a 6 trillion budget, as is now actually, or even more. And it can pour trillions into education, infrastructure, care and housing. Any amount of spending that is authorized by Congress will take place. The Federal Reserve uh, elaborate the elaborate network of primary dealers and there to guarantee it. That is the reality of the staff model uh, which, which this, the decouples spending from the prior need to raise money to taxing or borrowing. The question is, how do we want to want the federal government to use its great power? How much should it spend? What should it fund? What about inflation? And taxes? Can we trust Congress to make the right choices at the right time? Making productive treat investments when there is fiscal space and not exercising necessary restraints as resources become scarce. Perhaps I'm too cynical, but I like the kind of insurance plan. I'd like to, oh, I'd like to have uh, some, kind of, uh, yeah, some kind of insurance plan. There are two parts to the federal budget. There is the discretionary part, which, over which Congress has well discretion to change the amount of money it goes into existing or new programs each year. Most of the money that gets spent in defense, education, environmental protection, and transportation comes from annual discretionary budget appropriations. But there's also a non-discretionary or mandatory part. But is more or less preordained by statutory criteria, spending a program like Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid while under this category, <clears throat> unemployment insurance, supplemental nutritional or SNAP, formerly food stamps, interest, interest on a US Treasuries, and student loans are also binding commitments that cause spending to rise or fall independently of congressional uh, action. When someone becomes disabled, retires, loses a job, turns 65, invests in U.S. Treasury, or takes out a federal student loan, federal dollars are automatically released to meet these expenditures. In total, mandatory spending accounts for just over 60% of federal expenditures and interest accounts for nearly 10%. That means 70% of the federal budget is essentially on autopilot, leaving just 30% under discretionary control of lawmakers, of course, with enough votes, Congress has the power to change any part of the budget. It could stop issuing treasuries and leave it to the financial support to federal Reserve to supply interest-bearing securities. Over time, that would completely eliminate interest expenditures from the federal budget. It could vote to pass a single-payer, Medicare for all, uh, health, uh, Medicare for all, Medicare for all bill that would substantially increase mandatory spending while saving the rest by the trillions over time or if it simply appropriate some uh, appropriate more discretionary funding for these for these for things like transportation and, and education as we learned uh, in the past chapters the Congress is a legal body with the power to suspend or modify any self-imposed constraints ie PAYGO, the bird rule debt ceiling vo2 a allocations, no overdraft etc that might otherwise prevent lawmakers from appropriately or funding funding or stop the Federal Reserve from clearing authorized payments on behalf of the Treasury even the CBO in the White House uh, Senate must s- uh, budget wait, might, uh, the House excuse me, the House and Senate budget committees which were themselves created through an act of Congress in 74. Could be dissolved or instructed to follow new protocols, and of course, the Federal Reserve is a is a creator of Congress with a mandate that is subject to change. A creature, excuse me, not creator, but creature. (laughs) We missed a book on that one. Before we get to discussion about how policy making might uh, improve in an NMT informed world, let me share a couple of stories that illustrate the dysfunctional way we do do things today. One of the first things I remember after becoming Chief Economist Democrats on the Senate Budget Committee was a meeting to discuss a proposed trillion-dollar infrastructure bill. A dozen or so senior staffers gathered around a large conference table on the third floor of the uh, Dirksen Senate Building, no one questioned the significant need for infrastructure investment. A trillion dollars, while ambitious, would would have only taken a bit out of the problem. A bite out of the problem, Excuse me. No one bounce glanced. No one glanced at the price, but there are there was considerable debate about whether or how to pay for. it. Before I tell you about the that debate, it's important to understand what uh, those words mean to lawmakers and their staffs and staffers on Capitol Hill. It n- ensures that there is only one way to pay for anything. All federal, uh, all federal spending is carried out in exactly the same way, that is, the Federal Reserve credits the appropriate bank accounts. When Washington speaks, you pay for it. Your, your spending by showing that you can't find enough money to cover the cost of whatever it is you're proposing to spend. It's all a game, uh, really, and is rooted in the flawed mental model tabs that holds back so much, uh, so much of a potential. To avoid adding deficit, uh, lawmakers, took, uh, lawmakers look far away for ways to cover the cost of their proposed uh, spending without b- borrowing. That usually means they could look—they uh, go looking for a t- for new tax revenue. Ba- uh, so back to the debate over the trillion-dollar infrastructure bill conversation began with staffers being asked whether we thought a so-called pay for what we pay for should be attached to the bill. It was my first week on the job, so I was relieved when another staffer spoke up first no. This person began, I think we should do it as a clean bill. A clean bill meant writing a spending bill that didn't include any language about how to pay for it. Another staffer agreed, and soon I echoed that sentiment our country desperately needed to make these investments. There was clearly enough fiscal space to do it and infrastructure is one of these things that has traditionally enjoyed bipartisan support. Since the GOP was in control of the Senate, we reasoned the bill would need at least some support from Republicans to pass. Proposing a tax increase would, get, would guarantee defeat. Not everyone agreed. Another staffer objected to the, pres- uh, to the to that press wouldn't take the legislation and seriously unless it specified exactly how it would be paid for. At the end, the bill uh, included a proposal to raise revenue by closing a variety of tax loopholes that overwhelmingly would benefit the rich. Needless to say, the legislation did not pass, meanwhile the latest AESCE report card shows our deferred maintenance is catching up with us. The cost of our needed uh, improvements have climbed to a whopping $4.59 trillion. Sometimes lawmakers are willing to look, at, look the other way and vote to authorize spending without worrying about where the money will come from. Take defense spending, for example. Each year, Congress votes to improve a defense bill and policy bill, and in 2017, a 2000 1,215-page bill, bill known as the National Defense Authorization Act, or NDA Act, sailed through the Senate with a vote of 89 to 9. The White House had requested $700 billion, but the Senate authorized $737 billion, kicking an extra $37 billion uh, without a hint of concern about where to find the money. They simply voted in an overwhelmingly bipartisan way to increase the Pentagon's discretionary budget. That might seem like a double standard, as Congresswoman uh, AOC put it, quote, we, in quotes, we write unlimited blank checks for war, for war. We just wrote a $2 trillion check for that tax. The GOP tax cut, and nobody asked those folks uh, how were we were going to pay for it. That she's right. Somewhere, somehow, there's always money for war and tax cuts or just about everything else. However, lawmakers are expected to show they can pay for it. They're spending it at least on paper. With 535 members of Congress, 100 in the Senate, and 435 in the House of Representatives, this requires the state stream of new funding options. During my time in the Senate, I learned about a one stop. Uh, one-stop shop that was created to provide lawmakers with ready access to a, a litany of so-called pay-fors. If a congress, if congressman needed to find $10 billion, $50 billion, or $500 billion or more, Calvin Johnson had just discovered. For years, Johnson, a professor of corporate and business law at the University of Texas Law School, helped to run a, something called the Shell Project. Some, together, Johnson and other tax experts assembled a collective and different a collective, collections, <coughs> collection of different proposals that can be pulled off the shelf when Congress is ready to raise revenue. Johnson's testimony before the Senate Committee on Finance in 2010 was titled, uh, in quotes, No Ways to Raise a Trillion, 50 Ways to Raise a Trillion, in the summer, when lawmakers returned home to their districts, the binders, the binders mostly sat on the shelf gathering dust. But when Congress was in session and someone needed a plausible paper so, to attach to some piece of legislation, Johnson's phone was under constant pressure. He and his colleagues were deeply passionate about their work, they were gobbling. cobbling cobbling together proposals simply for the sake of helping lawmakers jump from the page for a hoop. For then, the the project was about identifying ways to make the tax system fairer and more efficient. But, in the eyes of many staffers, the shelf project was sort of like the filing cabinet in the fraternity house where uh, folders contained hundreds of old midterm exams are stored. In other words, it's where you go to cheat your way around. active obstacles I like pay go. Uh, shopping for a pay-for's went some something like this. In quotes, "Hi, I'm a staffer in Senator X's office. The senator needs 250 billion over 10 years. What what have you got, Johnson? Might recommend a single a single change to some part of the tax code that would raise the full." 350 billion or you might pull down the binder a few binders that, that together will generate the full amount of six of one six of 100 a dozen of the other. The goal was to find your boss enough to get enough revenue to pay the game, play the game. My own impression is that nearly everyone in Congress has at least some sense of just how crazy the pay for the pay for game is. I first realized this in 2015 during Boat of rama Week. Boat of rama is a frenzied circus during which all 100 senators assemble to cast rapid-fire votes on a plethora, a plethora of non-binding budget amendments. One after another, senators rise, uh, rise to urge their colleagues to vote in support of their quote, deficit-neutral amendments, to expand so security, custom, tax cuts, there we go cut taxes there we go raise the minimum wage and so on I watched part of it from the back benches on the Senate floor and I remember laughing after hearing California Senator Barbara Boxer tell one of her colleagues he quotes I voted for your amendment even though you're paying for it, 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 the, the way, even though you're paid for it, it is bullshit unquote I couldn't have said it better myself her point was a simple one. We've got a really screwy way of drafting, and evaluating, and passing legislation. We, protect, we pretend that the federal government need, needs to budget like a household. We think of taxes are as something like government needs, i.e. revenue, instead of remembering that taxes are there to subtract or to subtract spending power from the rest of us so that the government's own spending doesn't push the economy beyond its full employment limit. We hamstring legislation by demanding that the government pay for it or pay for new spending, even when the economy could safely absorb that spending without the need for higher taxes. And we do all of this uh, because we decide that these household budget and budgeting practices somehow serve the public interest. They don't. What would it look like if the government overcame the deficit myth, and started budgeting like a currency issuer instead of protecting. That it need, pretending that it needs to pay for its spending just like the rest of us. It might feel like the myths are there to protect us from politicians who would otherwise spend too much and tax too little. There may be some truth to that, but the bigger problem is that they also prevent us from spending enough. Somewhere between excessive spending and unwanted fiscal restraint lies a better economy for all. To build that economy, we need a new plan. So what's the NMT prescription? Is there a way to improve the well-being of our people without pushing things too far? Can fiscal policy really take over the economic steering wheel? What's left of monetary policy? Transferring the economy steering wheel to the fiscal authority means relying on democratically elected members of Congress who relax the purse when bigger deficits can help support the economy and then tighten them back up as the economy reaches its full employment spe- speed limit. This is the ex- essence of the functional finance approach that was pioneered by Abba, Abba P. Lerner in the 1940s. Instead of obsessing over deficits and trying to force the budget into balance, Lerner wanted, to, wanted the lawmakers to write a budget that would keep the economy balance at full employment. M.T. drives inspiration from learners' work but with the COVID, uh, caveat that we need to do more than simply ask Congress to take over the senior wheel of the Federal Reserve. We need to offer some guiding, guiding principles to help lawmakers wield this power responsibly and in, in ways that serve the broader public good. For that, we'll need to establish some new guardrails and will need to provide lawmakers with clearly marked speed limits, a dashboard of indicators, and a driverless feature that takes over much of the steering. That way, fiscal policy can serve as a powerful stability for a stabilizing force even when our politics are at their most dysfunctional. dysfunctional. Okay, that'll do it for the day. Uh, next part of the chapter is called Monetary Driverless Spending. That'll be on page 234, 243. Uh, thank you for listening, uh, this was an earlier read, uh, earlier reading of Stephanie uh, Kilded's book, Debs and Myths. Uh, I'm pretty sure there are still uh, bookstores, so uh, check them out first before you go to Amazon. Anyway, I uh, hope you're wearing those masks. I hope you're staying safe. Uh, please subscribe to this podcast for just nine nights of the month for this and talking financially. And also, don't pre- And just so you know, um, eventually I will be putting my uh, leftist news on um, Green Party and Socialist uh, News Channel uh, on my Patreon, which I have restarted and is called patreon.com slash slack network. All slack and ne- all slack network is stabilized. it's easier to do. You can uh, become a Patreon uh, with one dollar or more, depending on what you want. In regards to that, um, but yes, eventually I'll be moving my channel onto Patreon. Uh, that includes um, interviews and such. Uh, I do have an interview tonight with someone in Australia to talk about. MMT and other things by nature as well. I think they're uh, starting up their own version of a uh, radio uh, network, so that will be on the docket for a conversation. So uh, look for that as well. Uh, thanks for listening, and I'll be back on later on for a talk with financially. Hope you guys have a good morning. Peace out for now, and stay safe.